0: Welcome to Broadcasting Common Ground, the Deep Foundation Institute's podcast channel. In this series, DFI's Rumble, we will be speaking with opposing industry representatives, asking hard questions and facilitating a polite argument. In this episode, Ross McGilvray and Kevin Johnson discuss the installation, design, and verification of helical parts. Sponsored by ECA. Welcome to DFI Podcast, Broadcasting
1: Common Ground. Nagarajan and welcome to Rumble, where we ask two guests to enter the arena and go toe to toe on topics relevant to our industry. How cool, right? The ref referee facilitates the discussion. So in this episode, my friend Tim Siegel joins us again to referee the discussion between Kevin Johnson, senior engineer with EarthTech LLC in Tampa, Florida, and Ross McGillray, senior consultant for Ardeman and Associates, also in Tampa, Florida. Tim, can you give us a hint of what's in store for us?
2: Yeah, Lucky, in this episode of Rumble, we're going to hear from two well-known geotechnical authorities as they enter the ring on the subject of helical piles. Most of our listeners have likely noticed the upward movement in this sector of our industry over the last five to ten years. But even if they haven't, this episode has a lot to offer. So let's take a look at our ticket. First, we have Dr. Kevin Johnson. Kevin is a senior engineer with EarthTech LLC in Tampa, Florida. In Kevin's years with EarthTech, he has been involved in dozens of helical pile projects on the contractor side of things and is a solid proponent of the technology. In the opposite corner, we have Mr. Ross McGillery, Ross is a senior consultant with Artman in Tampa, the Tampa area. Ross is a well-known and highly respected engineer and has been a stalwart uh, in that region. His perspective is one of the geotechnical consultant who relies on many different technologies to meet the demands of his clients. Ross is here to ask some hard questions, probably some of which are also on the minds of our listeners. We are exceptionally grateful to these two geotechnical experts for their willingness to join our podcast.
1: Thank you, Tim. Um, And thanks to Dr. Kevin Johnson and Ross for joining us. And uh, it's very interesting. Uh, My first introduction to Helical Piles was in 2009. I'm very interested to see all the things you you both have to say or don't want to say. Uh, Good luck and uh, see you soon
2: all right so um let's have a oh well there we go we got the bell all right quick let's have a good fight and no low blows all right uh kevin and ross welcome thank you tim thanks tim good to be here good to have you so in this first round we're going to start out with kind of a a warm up with a little bit of technical background uh on the subject of helical piles. Kevin, would you mind sharing a description and maybe a little bit of background on helical piles for some of our, for our listeners?
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, helical piles, I guess, start with, uh, you know, the most basic fundamental uh, kind of defining characteristics, what you have to have to make a helical pile, it's a essential shafts, um, whatever, whatever size, shape, or material it is, a central shaft. And then you need to have one or more helically deformed plates attached to that shaft. Uh, And those helical plates serve two purposes. One is to facilitate installation by converting a torsional energy to a downward advancement. And then two, they serve as primary uh, geotechnical resistance for the pile. Uh, Those helical plates, they need to be a true helix shape. Uh, meaning they need to have a constant pitch and they need to uh, track the same path as they go down. And, and really that's it. That's all that makes the pile, you know, in in an anchorage uh, at the top of the pile. And, and that's it. Uh, As far as their background goes, they've been around for a long time. Uh, They've been around since I believe they got their start back in the early 1800s. And uh, it wasn't until uh the twentieth century with the huge advancements in, in hydraulic machinery and, and rotary equipment that really installation really went from you know man and donkey power to actual machine power and you know ever since then they've just grown exponentially. Uh you know, historically they were started out being used for light structures and underpinning, but people started using them in buildings they got Adopted into the codes. Uh, International Building Code adopts them in 2009, and that was on the heels of uh, the ICC document AC 358, which came out just a couple of years before, which kind of laid the groundwork for setting standards on how these things need to be manufactured. And since then, they've been a part of the IBC and been used on buildings all over.
2: Very good. Well, thank you, Kevin. Ross, we're gonna go to you. Um, You have been in practice for some time. Is there anything that you would add to the description or background of helical piles? And is there anything that Kevin said that might come as a surprise to you? Well,
4: I was surprised a little bit on how early, uh, but uh, other than that, no, I think uh, I understand. And and, uh, I've used helical piles upon occasion, Use them once, uh, actually telephone pole anchors, to hold down a vault uh, against hydraulic uplift. And, uh, and we installed those, tapping on them with a sledgehammer and walking around in the circle with a bar. Um, and uh, I've used them in some other locations. But you got to be careful when you use them that you've got the right application and the right soil profile. Uh, I, I don't think vertical helical piles can take significant lateral load. Uh, Kevin may uh, uh, argue that point and I'll be glad to listen to it and uh, y- you need to look at the required load per helical and and the depth of bearing to decide what, what uh, whether this is the type of pile that's going to work for your application. Underpinning light structures undergoing different differential settlement distress, I'm okay with that. I've used them for that, uh, but other locations uh, not so much in, in, in a very deep, soft soil profile. I'm not sure that's the right type of problem.
2: Well, you know, that brings up a good point. You know, that's kind of how the evolution of our industry has been that we, we, you know, te- as technology come in, they take on uh, uh what, you know, there's really no such thing as a small project, but let's just say smaller, lighter projects. And then as that technology gets proven, it gets, up you know it increases in size and increases in in uh probably the aggressiveness so you know kevin could you share with us kind of a range of applications or project size or soil conditions that you have seen helical piles be successful
3: yeah absolutely and i'll you know i'll I'll challenge some of ross's points there um yeah we definitely use them for lateral loads um Lateral loading—it's it, all just a function. It's a, you know, it's a round steel pipe. You definitely want to use the uh, the round shaft versus the square shaft for lateral loading. Uh, but then once you go to the round shaft, uh, it, it's just a it's just a round hollow pipe like any other. And depending on the lateral load that you need, you just make sure you have the right size pipe. Um, you know, we've used them for for lateral loads. Uh, up in the, up in the 15 kip allowable range, I would say. Um,
2: what diameter would that be Kevin for 15 kips? What, what diameter of pipe?
3: Uh, that would be a four and a half inch or five and a half inch. We've used the, we've used a four and a half inch. No, I'm sorry. We've used, we, we, for a, for a 13 kip lateral load we have used a five and a half inch. Um, and then of course it also depends on what axial load you combine with that because you have to, you have to split that axial and and lateral. We've used one, we've done one application where we had a hundred kip axial and, uh, and a 12 kip lateral at the same time. And for there, what we, for that, what we did was a, uh, a four and a half inch down the majority of the pile length, and then in the upper twenty feet we went to a, I believe a seven and five eighths inch. So that one was a pretty significant uh, combination of axial and lateral. Um, so we've definitely used them for for fairly high, you know, in axial loads we've gone up to, we've gone up to maybe a hundred and twenty kips, sixty ton. Allowable loads um, you know load tested them up to you know hundred and twenty tons two hundred and forty kips, but i've seen them i've been uh, you know i've not been involved with but been privy to other projects and 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 talked to others about projects where they've gone up to uh two hundred tons allowable these things with two hundred uh, tons with shatters. yeah Woo. with uh. With with 12 inch diameter shafts, and I've seen them up to up to 18 inch diameter shafts. I've I've seen it was either 18 or a 24 inch shaft and in a in a 48 inch diameter helix. Ooh. Um, so they they can get up there. It's all just a it's all just a function of of your uh, pipe diameter, and do you have something to install it with? Uh, they get to be you know, the motors you install them with get to be pretty big, but that's that's really been the limiting factor historically is having the motor to install it with. Once we get past that barrier, then, you know, it's still just a, uh, a steel column. So
2: so what's the long, what's the longest you've installed or seen installed?
3: Um, we've installed them down to 120 feet. Whew,
2: okay. All right. So if I could summarize, I'm just going to quickly summarize. Um. You said that you've handled lateral loads. Now, is that with a battered one that you handle lateral or is that with a vertical and you actually had a vertical pile handling a lateral load?
3: No, that's with a vertical.
2: So that's That's a vertical vertical. and you've seen lateral loads very typical of like, say, 13 to 15 kips on a four and a half, five and a half inch pile. You've installed some to 100 120 feet deep, and then you've seen them where they've almost put 400 kips axial compression. I'm just summarizing, kind of rough.
3: Yep, um, yeah, that's right.
2: All right, so I would say
3: uh, four, four and a half, five and a half inch shafts, up to maybe you know a 15 kip lateral. You might be up in the the seven and a half to eight and, a, eight and five eighths inch shaft, but all right. in that range, yeah all right let me so add, I'm gonna, i gotta get go ahead ross i was gonna get you in
4: here. let me let me ask a, a question in terms of where you where you had a you moved up to a seven inch shaft that that, that shank that that makes some sense to me uh but i see the what diameter plate did you have The helix did you have because it seems to me that you're going to get some slip no matter how perfect that helix is it's not going to follow true. so you're going to get Soil disturbed and loosened potentially around the shank and i'm not I'm not sure uh what that what that lateral displacement might look like at you know in terms of of pushing against that loosened yeah. soil
3: yeah that that is a factor there is a disturbance factor um, on those on those particular piles you know we had up to a eighteen inch diameter helix um that 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 is a factor soil disturbance and and there's there's ways for accounting for that in your py analysis there's disturbance factors you can put on there um and we've done lateral tests on helical piles uh, that particular project we did not do a lateral test i believe uh, but we have done lateral tests and we still get good results we do not uh, we may get a little bit more than what the l pile showed uh but it's not it's not order of magnitude or anything and of course that would you know you also have to consider what kind of soils you're in Um, i was
2: going to ask you about that tell us about maybe a little bit clay sand is is one more problematic than another when it comes to helical piles or really they're both uh, adaptable
3: both of, both of them are adaptable. Um, you would have to consider for that lateral question that Ross was just pointing out, you know, you, you would want to consider what was in your upper 10 to 20 feet. If you've got a clay versus a sand, something that's going to, versus where your water table is and everything like that. If you're going to get soils collapsing back down around the pipe versus if you're going to or end up wallowing out a hole that's now you know two inches bigger than your pipe is. Yeah, that would be that would be something uh, that needs to be considered. And and adding grout to these things can sometimes be a solution there. But as far as down at the bearing layer goes, um, uh, sand or clays can be fine. Uh, certain clays, if you've got a a, a sensitive clay you know that's sensitive to pore pressure it's still uh not a problem but uh, you and probably talk about this later but it may affect your torque correlations
2: we're going to come around to that And,
3: and, and as far as the uh and as far as the installing in deep very soft soils we have installed them we've actually used in several applications where we've got several feet of weight of hammer, either very soft clays, um or organics. And you know, these projects have been brought to us because auger cast or some other type of cast in place pile isn't just really effective because it's just gonna swallow up the grout and, you know, maybe they looked at driven piles and it's just not economical and, and we'll come up with the helical solution through there now we do of course have to consider the, the buckling state in that and that is part of the design and you have to get the right pipe size to account for that but that's actually a, a, a common application doesn't it, because of that because there's no grout involved
2: well you know uh, you brought up some uh, innovative ways of using uh, helical piles have you uh, use them on slopes or embankments.
3: Slopes or embankments. We have not used them on slopes or embankments. We have used other, um, maybe alternative piles. Actually, Ross, Ross and I were involved in a in a slope stabilization project where we use we and we did consider helical piles, but we ultimately ended up using some ductile iron pipe piles and Ross was there. We actually did did some controlled lateral testing in the shop. And then we also did some lateral testing out in the field to make sure they could take that. But uh, as far as helical piles go, we have not used them for slopes. Um, uh, we have used them in some other kind of alternative ways. We have used them as rigid inclusions.
2: Okay. Ross, how we about you? That. How about you, Ross, have you, got, you, you have some thoughts about less traditional ways of using helical piles? Well, I've used them as tiebacks for sheet powwows
4: and, and they're good uh, uh, alternative there with the exception that you've got to have a hole big enough to put the plate through and then patch that hole. So, but uh, uh, in, that, in the particular case that I use them, they, they were very effective, It wasn't a very tall wall. Uh, but there would be no reason why you couldn't spin them in if you've got the right equipment to to do that. Uh, as far as slope stabilization, if you install them horizontally or at a shallow angle and and uh, and put them in combination with an anchor wall type, you know, like a uh, uh, an anchored wall type situation, I can see them working. But uh, as Kevin noted, we I use them. The ductile iron to stabilize the slope of a dam that was that was settling differentially on the face and failing on the face, and uh, and uh, that they were very effective. And I've been monitoring them now. We did that two years ago, I think. Kevin and they're they're working fine. Nothing's moving, so I feel good about that. I've used uh, drilled cast-in-place piles, vertical. Uh, to uh, stabilize slopes a project in, in uh, uh, Georgia, South Carolina border. And uh, in, uh, in general, uh, slope stabilization, I think with hel- helical piles, you could do it, but I'm not sure that uh, vertical piles or soil nails aren't as good or better a solution for that.
2: I just wonder, I'm, I, you know, were those anchors that you put in uh, in the sheet pile wall, how far back from the wall face did you extend those helical piles horizontally? Well,
4: you would treat them as if they were an little anchor wall. So they've okay. got to be outside of the, their passive, uh, uh, zone has got to be outside of the active zone of the wall. So, so that's pretty about, far. That could be pretty far on a tall wall. This was not a real tall wall, so it okay. wasn't, wasn't that big a deal. They weren't that long, but uh, if you could put one in, I don't know. Kevin can tell us how how long he could put in a horizontal one. Uh, that's equipment controlled system, I would think. But you'd probably be using something like a 12 inch or 14 inch plate, something like that.
3: Yeah, yeah, it it could be done. Probably something with a. It would depend on the exact application, but. I mean, there would really be no limit to uh, to how long of a pile you could put in horizontally. You know, it would just depend, but it, it could absolutely be a feasible application.
4: Well, Kevin, how how well do they pull themselves in versus you need crowd or push on them to to keep them moving?
3: They they pull themselves in to where you need little to no crowd. If if those if those helices are actually manufactured well, uh, and you're in you're in good soil, you're in a a, a medium dense or medium firm or medium stiff soil, uh, they will just pull themselves down with little to no crowd, and, th- and that's the ideal situation very cool. So I, I think
4: in a soldier pile wall, they would work extremely well in a, in a sheet pile wall, maybe not as well because of the having to go through the wall with the plates, but for a soldier pile wall, you don't have that problem. Uh they could be a great solution. Um uh, I've not used it for that, but I, I wouldn't I I never say no to anything basically. I I'm, I'm going to look and see what it looks <laughs> like it might work.
2: I think that's true about geotechs. that that especially consultants right we we want we look at the whole the whole tool bag to find the right one all right well well done gentlemen that's the end of round one so let's take a short break and we'll be back Okay, we're back for round two. We spent round one discussing the background and use of helical piles. Now let's shift gears for round two and talk about construction techniques. Helical piles can be installed in a variety of ways. They can have a torque motor attached to a backhoe where room permits, or in tighter spaces, they can have uh, their installation performed by a handheld torque motor. In many cases, helical piles are used for underpinning, so room is often a a, a scarce commodity. So, Kevin, let's talk a little bit about installation. Um, What's been your experience with helical piles in tight spaces? How easy would you say their installation is, let's just say, for inside of a typical office building?
3: Oh, well, this is one of the areas where the piles really shine. Um, they're great for this application. Uh, just to start with, I mean, there, there, there's no vibration, uh, no noise. There's, uh, you know, very often no ground involved, so very little mess. Uh, there's also no spoils. So all that makes it really good. And then they can be installed with, uh, you know any range of equipment depending on the size and the torque that you need. We've installed them with uh, a mini excavator. We've installed them uh, with a Bobcat skid steer. We've installed them with a 35-ton excavator, and we've in- we've installed them by hand with a with a a, a bar, just a long bar. We've had to install them in an old historic hotel just for some shoring anchors, and we had to just twist them in by hand Uh, we've also installed them in some tight spaces where we we had to install some rather high-capacity ones and so we needed we installed them we needed a a 90,000 foot-pound motor but the rig that was needed which was a a either a 25 or 35 ton excavator which is needed would not fit in there, so we mounted the motor to something smaller, a, a 50 or something, and we actually we tied them off things. We've used other things because you have to keep that rig stable while it twists, and then run the hydraulic hoses out to an excavator outside so that it could actually run the motor. Um,
2: Kevin, that's awesome. I mean, um, that, it it certainly. uh is noted that helical piles are very flexible and they can be installed with a a variety of ways but you know from a consultant standpoint you know we, we generally like to see things done over and over again so we can get an empirical basis uh ross um you're the designer for example let's just say you're hypothetically you picked helical piles for your project what given the fact that there's a range of different ways to install them what what installation data that do you want for your design
4: well i'm going to base the design basically on on a soil profile i get from cone penetrometer indoor borings and so i know what the soil profile looks like and i know where i want the bearing to be so i've got a pretty good idea and i can calculate the bearing capacity of the of that helical and, and have a pretty good idea of where it needs to be to, to do the job but I want to know the depth and i want to and i if I can get it i want to know the torque uh, but I don't rely on the torque for capacity I'm relying on the torque to tell me that I got into the layer that i wanted to bury in so because the torque tells you nothing about what's below that helical all its measurements are at the helical so if you in and I think the, the weak spot is is if you've got a situation where you have something weak below a hard layer that's that may refuse the 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 uh, helical that's where the problems can come for. so you want to be sure that you penetrated the zone where you were expecting to get the bearing that you were looking for um, and then uh, as far as uplift resistance, I think the torque Does give you valuable information on terms of soil strength because there the plates penetrated the layer you're expecting to generate your resistance in. So uh, if the loads are high, the Appalachian, uh, you know, I I want some load tests generally, uh, except in very, you know, where I know I've got lots of capacity and I'm underpinning a light building and I'm just going below the layer that's causing differential settlement let's say then I may not be worrying about a load test but otherwise I would certainly want load tests and if I was using it for lateral load I sure as heck would want a load test just like we did on the ductals to to verify that yeah we're going to get what we think we're going to get
2: very good very good Kevin let me follow up with you on 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 one uh, one of the things that Ross said and that is the relationship between torque and axial capacity. So, you know, I, I, I've read some of the literature and I'm sure Ross has too, cause he brought it up and where there is a, a you know, a, a correlation between torque and axial capacity. But the engineer in me tends to think, boy, that that may be true but it always needs to be qualified. In other words, just simply if I were to walk out to a site and install a helical pile and get a torque and, and, and just, you know, wipe my hands clean and say, ah, I got the actual capacity. That seems to be, could be a little bit, uh, I won't say, you know, that'd be concerning. So so what, what's your take on this? Is, is the torque versus actual capacity? Is it, is it uh, black and white, or is there qualifications that need to be made?
3: No, there's definitely qualifications, and I will, I will, almost a hundred percent agree with uh, with Ross on this one. However, those torque correlations, there is a lot of empirical data out there to support those. Uh, but again, you do have to look at your application. Those torque correlations. You know, there's only a ton of data for certain size shafts, you know, anything from a, a square bar to a, a two and seven eighths round up to maybe a four and a half inch. Once you get bigger than a four and a half inch pile, it, it kind of goes out the window. Um, you know, and you also have to look at your soils. soil correlations are are really good in they're really good in granular soils. Um in some clays too, you know, I, we would all, we almost always perform a load test. I can think of maybe one or two jobs that were just very small, uh, lightly loaded underpinning type jobs, but, we, but even the light ones, we do a load test. Um, we always do a load test. And I also, we always, we always form a theoretical bearing capacity calculation, uh, so the, the torque is a is a is a good QA QC measure and it tells you a lot of information about that insulation about the soil profile that you're in and and about the condition of your pile. Uh, but no, I, I I agree. We a load test is always important. Um, we almost always back it up with the load test.
2: Well, let's let me ask you this about load testing. So I. I, I for I love load tests. I I kind of think it's one of the fun things where you actually get to see things perform and evaluate how good our predictive models or predictive calculations are. Um I've not performed a load test on a helical pile. Is there are they is it common to instrument them? And if do what instruments would you put in one if you wanted to say get the distribution in uh, axial load along uh, the helical pile?
3: Uh, I've I've seen them instrumented. Um, I've, I've seen them instrumented both, you know, in, in the research world. But I've also seen them instrumented in practice for jobs, and um, usually it's it's where the Interior of the pile is grouted, and they've dropped a bar down in there and tied some sister bars off to it. Uh, I've never done an instrumented helical pile load test. I've done a ton of uh, load tests on helical piles, uh, but not one instrumented with sister bars. And that well, I've done I've done both static load tests and I've also done dynamic and rapid load tests on piles. And then those are of course instrumented with the accelerometers that are needed for that. But uh, no, I was going to
2: ask you that happen. same question. Did yeah. you have you ever run a dynamic test? That was one of my questions. So you have actually performed a dynamic test on on these. Yes. But well, what yeah. do you think? Are yeah,
4: we, we do that data, Tim? <laughs> I
2: know this. We got to get the PDA guys back out here. Um, we get Paul and, uh, and Greg to fight over this. Um, interesting. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So um, Ross, I wanna come back to you. Um, Let's say that you are engaged uh, and you've got a specific project. Uh, Tell me what would be the conditions of those projects that would make an ideal helical pile job?
4: Well, for me, as I said, an underpinning situation where we've got a building that's performing poorly, uh, we've we we you can't go banging around next to it. You, you need to do something that's that's not intrusive, and uh, and a helical pile is, a, is an ideal application for that. And uh, you can uh, in there. I'm going to expect to have a shallow peat layer or some other soft. Layer that's causing the settlement problems that we're trying to get through down to a a, a more uh, firm layer. And so it's pretty easy to tell when you got down to where you need to be. And I think it's pretty easy to figure out that, yeah, if I have this size plate, it's going to carry this size load, and that's what I need to stabilize the structure. So that'd be my primary uh, uh, use of the system. As I said, I've used them for, anchored wall type approaches. And I could see that they could be a, a, a good way to do it. And I would certainly consider helicals for that. Again, especially if you're in an environment, urban environment, for instance, where you're worrying about um, uh, disturbance and, and adjacent buildings, because you've got to reach out beyond that wall. You're getting off your property line here and you don't want to be causing problems with the neighbors. So a helical might be a good good solution there. I wouldn't Pretty want good. to use it. I wouldn't want to use it uh, in a situation where, which we have often in Florida, uh, a hard pan layer down around 5, 6, 10 feet that's underlain by loose material or soft material. Because getting the, that auger through that hard layer is going to be a nightmare if you can do it at all. And um, it's uh but you've got the risk of punching if you put any significant load on it on that thin layer, so uh, that's that's an area where I would I would not consider the, the helical as a good solution. Um, so in real deep, thick, soft layers, I'm still I'm still on the fence on that. I'm, I, I would have been an absolute no before Kevin was talking, but uh, if he can convince me I don't have a buckling problem, then then I might consider it for that. Uh, also where you have, if, let's suppose I've got significant uplift that I need, but I've got a very soft soil down to a very hard layer that I can't penetrate.
0: Mm. with the
4: halophage. I'm not going to get a lot of uplift capacity out of it. Uh, and I'm not going to be able to get through that hard layer. And that's where a micropile approach is going to be a better solution. So you've got to fit the solution to the problem, basically.
2: No, in fact, I was going to say something similar, and that is that, you know, no technology that we have is uh, applicable in all cases or the best solution in all cases. So it's really not a knock against helical piles that there are some cases that are more optimal and some that are less optimal or maybe some cases where you, like you mentioned, the the hard pan. I I could think of a couple of different technologies that could hang up shallow. That you you know you don't really want that. Um, you want to be able to, because the worst thing that you'd want to do is to hang up on something hard, only then to be kind of uh, uh, burned by settlement or or maybe some sort of structural punching down the road.
3: Yeah, that, that's exactly right, and that's let's see. We have that condition a lot in, in the south part of Florida. There's that shallow limestone, hard pan, and uh, a lot of areas down there. Um, it, they're just not a viable option. Sometimes they are, you know, that, that layer varies, but we have, we have gotten in situations where we've refused a lot earlier than expected. So, you know, when we do a, a helical design, we always look at the soil profile, we look at what torque we're expecting to get. Um, and we're always expecting to get that torque within a certain range of depth. If, if we hit it too early, then, you know, the operator knows to call us. Um, if we get to the bottom of that range and haven't gotten any kind of uptick in torque, then, you know, they know to call us. Uh, also the nice thing about being a design builder, having that, uh, direct line of communication with the field but but yeah there's there's definitely the same thing with the uplift application um another one they have to be careful with is liquefiable soils um, we had a we had a project where uh, we were going down to our bearing layer but it was it was there was some liquefiable soils up above and basically we had a you know, when I say we're looking to get our expected capacity in a certain range of depth, we had a very, very narrow range that, that we were looking to get that in. So, yeah, there, there's definitely applications where, where they're not uh, the best solution.
2: Hey, great job. That was awesome.
1: They both did amazing, uh, Tim. They're, they're sailing very well.
2: Oh, man, this has been wonderful. I've learned a whole whole lot.
1: yeah, and I really like the perspective of you know Ross, who has been in the industry for a very long time and talking about like how he has been designing helical piles and the do's and don'ts and Kevin, who is installing it. It's really nice to see their perspective
2: well, I, I can tell you that you know I haven't got nearly the amount of experience that Ross has, but some of the same questions I have had, and some i'm I'm, I'm I'm really pleased that he's brought them up.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know, uh, um, I know in the um next round, I know I'm sure they're going to spill a little bit of blood on each other. I'm sure. Oh, <laughs> oh
2: yeah, we're we're this uh, is I mean this is the deciding round, right? So they've they've really got to go for the jugular on this one.
1: Yes, yes. I the can see Ross time.
2: smiling. <laughs>
1: And I'm really interested to see, uh, um, they did speak a little bit about, uh, you know, geotechnical parameters and also um, uh, obstruction management, right? If you hit any kind of obstruction or if you hit any hard layers, you know, you know what to do. And it would be nice to hear a little bit more on uh, consultant's perspective when he's looking through the geotechnical and uh, contractor's perspective for installation procedures. That would be re- really interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, there you go, uh, gentlemen. I think uh, I'm looking forward to seeing like how much uh, blood you will be spilling and uh, how well you will be doing. Who will be the winner? Let's see.
2: (laughs) All right, we are back for our third and final round on Helical Piles. So. Our first few rounds, we've gotten, we've looked into construction aspects, design aspects, a little bit of background information. And now, what we're going to do is kind of look at the communication between the consultant and the design builder or the contractor and see what their expectations are uh, with one another. So Kevin, I'm going to start with you this time. Um, you guys do design build, I assume, right? A lot of design build. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do would you say you do more design build than design bid build? In particularly with Hewlett. Uh, ab-
3: ab- absolutely. Yeah. Ninety-five uh, percent design okay. build.
2: All right. So here is your chance. Tell us a couple of things. First, you can tell us um, what information do you think a consultant uh, should include? And I, I guess I, I guess I should let me reword that. What information would you like to see in a geotechnical report to help you with your design build? In the
3: geotechnical report, uh, a good set of boring uh really uh is the main thing borings uh, or, or cpt um spt as, as, spt uh for helicals i think uh just because you can get a better classification of the soil type um that also uh, that also varies from region to region around the country so uh it, it could go either way but in general, with helicals, I, I want a good understanding of what I want. Some to have have seen a sample of that soil, um, but it's it maybe the problem we run into a lot is maybe the depth of borings. Um, a lot of times, uh, we'll get a set of borings, and and we're asked to give a price for helical piles, and you know, we just have to say there's this is probably a good helical profile, but we're not gonna get capacity in 25 feet. So, you know, we'll probably end up going deeper, which don't know how much deeper. And, you know, we can give you a unit price for extensions, but uh, <clears throat> as far as the geotech report goes, uh, just a good set of, of, of borings.
2: What would you say is the, what depth would you like to see the borings? Is it, would you like them to see go down to rock or would you like to see them, you know, like fifty feet, or what? Tell us. I mean, the, the geotechnical consultants out there—they want to know what. What do you want to see?
3: Yeah, I I would like to see them go down to either rock or some very dense layer. Um, right. You know, depending on on the the size and and loads on the building. I want to see him go down to some kind of bearing layer, something that can be considered a bearing layer. I mean, really, it it, it would be that way for any other type of pile you were putting in. Um, You know, I don't want to see a boring that goes down and stops in the middle of weight of hammer muck. It doesn't tell me what's down below that.
2: Well, any lab tests?
3: Uh, Lab tests? Uh, if, if we're talking about clays, if, if if we're talking about clays, is the only option we have for a bearing layer, or is the best the best bearing layer down there? Yeah, lab tests uh, absolutely be valuable.
2: What do you think? Uh, Atterberg limits and moisture content is that enough?
3: Yeah, yeah, I'd want Atterberg limits, moisture content, um, maybe in in some cases some uh, some shear testing. Okay. But average limits and moisture content will tell you a lot. Okay. Ross, you, what do
2: you want to see in a design builder? You've, you have made some recommendations, and then the owner has come back to you and said, uh, Engineer McGilvery, we're going to give you the set of plans of the design builder, and you're going to review them. What information do you want to know about from the design builder?
4: Well, first thing I want to do is argue about SPT versus CPT. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am a cone head. My son uh, for Ross, years years uh, I will tell you I've done projects. We did a project here in Florida when, when Joe Amon was was around. Where we did borings and Joe came to me and said, "Ross, can we send the cone over and get some good data?" So, the reality is a cone, and in fact, I did the same thing in Louisiana on a on a sound well project, where uh, I convinced the uh, the Louisiana DOT that uh, they'd be a lot better off doing CPTs than than borings uh, in their in their soil profile, because one, you get a very continuous sample; two, get extremely good correlation with strength. I can I can do a strength profile that's extremely detailed that you can't get out of SPT, where you're doing a SPT, five feet later you do another one and so on. And I know they say they do them at strata changes, but it's every five feet. Let's that's, that's be real about it. And uh, it's nice to see the sample, but I have taken the boring logs that we have, where we have both borings and CPTs, and plotted the. Uh, N60 value against the calculated FPTN from my cones, and uh, and the soil profile classification from the cone, and the agreement is amazing. So I, to me, the continuity of of CPT will will give me way more data than I can get out of a boring. The, The downside of a CPT is if I hit the shallow hard layer again, I've got to drill through it. In order to continue the CPT, or I, I can't get data below that point. In general, you'd like to have both, but and you can live with SPTs. Uh, I can. I have for twenty years or thirty years before I became a conehead, but uh, uh, that's that's the the one thing. But from the standpoint of the designer, I, I like to. To take something like a helical or or uh, soil nails or even micropiles to some degree uh, as a, uh, a a cooperation between the the consultant engineer and the and the contractor as a designer so a design build approach and I think helicals are one of those that fit into a a design-build approach. So, for instance, if I've designed a project for a pile foundations, and Kevin comes and he says, "Well, I, I think I can do this job with helicals," uh, I'm not going to say no. I'm going to say, "Prove it. Show me." And if it looks like it's going to do two things: one, it's going to solve the problem; it's going to give me the capacity and performance that I need; and two, it's going to save the owner money, then then I've got to agree that that's a good solution. Uh, so, so that's the approach that I would take, Tim. Uh, I want to get really good soil profiles where I can, and and then give that data to a qualified contractor who uh, who uh, knows what he's doing, and uh, and then work together to solve the problem. And we did that on our our uh, a uh, slope stability problem where I was able to go over to the yard and we sat up and worked out a scheme to run the lateral load test to make sure the piles could take the lateral load I wanted to take, just the pile itself. And then in the field, how did the install piles work? And so we got really good data and, um, and, and ultimately very good performance. And I, that's the way I want to approach a project. I, I don't see an adversarial role between the engineer and the contractor uh i I don't think that does anybody any favors but but that's uh that's kind of my two cents in
2: there well ross let me i I love that i love the statement you just said i don't see it as an adversarial relationship so um tell me if, if you can boil it down to one or two ingredients in that relationship that make it successful. What are they?
4: One is that they have somebody who knows what we're you know is talking on the same level. Like for instance, I like get Kevin at Earth Tech, who's got geotech and and can understand what I'm talking about. He can understand what I'm talking about, so we're not talking past each other. Or contractors, and and I remember one time Tim, I, I doing a, a legal case and uh engineer friend of mine we we're talking about the case and he says what he said he's trying to read the book to the contractor well the contractor can read the book better than he can <laughs> and and so you don't want to get yourself into a fight in that situation you haven't done the owner any favors so i'm looking to have a contractor that i can work with and and he doesn't have to be an engineer if he's got the experience and and has been around the block and knows his equipment. He knows what he, what he installs and he knows how it works where he is. So that's the main, that's what I'm looking for.
2: All right, Kevin, same question for you. You obviously work with a lot of consultants. What, what few ingredients would you say are key to those successful ones that you walk away and you like the one that you had with Ross, where it was a, A success all around and everybody walked away pleased. What's the secret sauce?
3: Yeah, in addition to what Ross said, you know, communication, of course. Uh, Communication and an open mind. And, you know, I also don't want uh, a consultant who, you know, once I do suggest something or, or propose something, they just throw their hands up in the air and say okay we're out of this now I do want your input, I, I want that input from the geotech consultant, uh, I, I rely on those geotechs all the time. Um, so I, I want it to be a two way street in those situations. Oh. So, uh, yeah I, I I, and I will go back to the SPT CPT thing I will say that that ross's and artiman cpt soundings are the best cp i would take those cpts over any spt so well you
2: know one thing and i i i believe i recall correctly but it's and it's been years we use a lot of cpt but not necessarily in a a closed area but i do remember that uh asking someone if they had a basically uh uh a hydraulic press that can be bolted to a floor slab and they could push the cone and they did. And so they were able to go inside of a, a building and actually push a cone through the floor, which I thought was probably the most, the best data you could get in that condition bar none. Anyway, otherwise, I mean, you'd probably be doing a hand auger or DCP or something.
3: We, we had one of those rigs. Did you, ever, did you ever get to use that rig that we built at USF, Ross? The no, little CPT that, that could be bolted no, to the slab and, and you know, No, I never CBT's. did. But, I, but I've done CPTs yeah. inside
4: of buildings before. Uh, I used to have a little rig that would, would go that that small. But uh, the, the mini cone system, and that's what you built you built that small diameter, kind of after the uh, sage cone type approach. Yeah. This inch in diameter. It was, it was a great approach. We don't have it anymore because it kept breaking and it's too costly to maintain. But anyway, any rate, now, it, you want data, you want communications, Tim, that's the main thing. And you want to feel comfortable that, that when you're talking to the contractor, he's willing to listen and the contractor knows you're willing to listen. If you've got nope. that, you have a good job. I've always said, if any, any construction pro- 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 project comes out of the ground clean, you're going to have a good job. If you have trouble coming out of the ground, it's going to haunt that job all the way through. That's great. And so that's where the geotechs kind of get shortcut because we're, we're a second tier consultant and sometimes we don't get to make all the choices we'd like to make, but uh, if we can get the project out of the ground, they're going to have a good project.
2: That's excellent. okay, I've got uh one more question for each of you. um Kevin, I'll start with you what what is the what's the next step for helical piles where Where would you like to be with the helical pile industry say over the next three years or so
3: you know i mean i i I think it's headed in the right direction um they are getting accepted more and more i mean i see them being used on bigger and bigger projects and and higher and higher capacities um you know with, with helical piles helical piles Kind of a unique situation because you have an extra player in there you also have the manufacturer you know with helical piles you're not taking raw material the contractor isn't just taking concrete and, and steel and putting them together in the field you have to rely on that manufacturer as well and um
2: well let me and, and, let me throw this out there to you so and i'll throw this also to ross in a minute helical piles have come up a little bit different route there, there really is an, an overwhelming amount of, of uh, like journal articles. There's a, there's plenty of like conference articles and magazine articles and manufacturer research, but we don't necessarily see. I wouldn't say the same amount is been, is in the academic world. Is that, a, is that fair? Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's fair. There, there is some in the academic world. Um, you know, University, I believe, University of British Columbia has had quite a few uh, helical pile studies that have been uh, really good with helical piles and sensitive fine-grained soils. And I think it was a, a DFI published uh, paper last year. I think it was University of Toledo. I which saw is a really that. Good one. One. Peel the pile anchorage, which was an excellent one because that's always, the anchorage is always a huge gray area. It's this overlap between the pile, the pile contractor and the structural engineer. And so I I think things like that are great. And there, there should be uh, more of it, more of it in the academic world, like you said. Very good. Okay.
2: Ross, last question for you. Uh, So... I just brought it up with Kevin that, you know, we we haven't seen um, probably compared to other site types of foundations, kind of that, the the development in the academic world. Do you feel like that's necessary or do you feel like we can bypass it and we're still on the right road?
4: Uh, I really think you can bypass it because practicing engineers aren't really looking at journal articles at this point. I mean, back 20 or 30 years ago, there was a very close link between what was going on in in academia and what was moving out into the the construction and professional applications world. And now the the journal articles have begun to be so scientific as opposed to engineering oriented uh, that I don't know that they're useful. So I think Uh, Publications like DFI and and conferences are the better source and the more likely places that you're going to get uh, the practice, you know, where you're getting case histories, where you're getting application oriented uh, uh, development rather than pure way out scientific type stuff.
2: Gotcha. So you don't think, so you don't, and I mean, I, I mean, so you don't think there's a little bit of like legitimacy that's assigned or it used to be, I mean, 20, 30 years ago, you know, if it was published in whatever, the geotechnical journal, um, it kind of lent a legitimacy to the process. But what you're saying is that's probably changed now. The paradigm has shifted. It's not necessary.
4: I think so. Uh, I mean, I have a copy of of Casagrande's flow through, you know, seepage uh, papers that he did in the Boston uh, ASCE. So, you know, at one time you were getting real engineering applications that you could get your arms around and say, I'm going to use that. Uh, You know, when Peck and these guys were were really connected to the construction world. And I don't see academia as connected anymore. There are professors who are. I mean, Gray Mullins at, at USF has done some fantastic stuff. And, and some folks at Georgia Tech and, and Auburn are, are doing good work. that uh, you, can, you can actually apply to what's going on. So I'm, I'm happy with conference papers and, and okay. special organizations like DFI's publications. I think they, they do a good job.
2: That's great. OK. Gentlemen, we're near the end, but what I'm going to do is just open it up for maybe any last thoughts. Um, Ross, we'll start with you. Any final comments for our listeners?
4: Well, I had one comment I wrote down. I, I think it it was, uh, I, I wouldn't rule out helical piles on any project. I might not put them out front myself, but I would be willing to to uh, uh, consider the them but I would be very careful about when or where I propose them. And the problem I have as an engineer is I don't get to select the contractor. So I have contractors I have a lot of confidence in, I work with all the time. But there are some contractors out there, small guys, and some of them do 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 uh helicals for sinkhole type work. Uh and to me they're scary because I'm not sure they know what they're doing. <coughs> and and so when you put out a a system which may require a little bit more engineering and a little bit more technique from the contractor. uh, If you put that out front and it gets bid and the low bidders in there, that may not work out real well. So I'm perfectly happy putting out a sure thing and then letting somebody like Kevin come to me and say, well, you know, we think we could do this on helicals and here's why. And as I said, if we can save the owner money and I'm happy with the we can get the results, and I'm all for it.
2: Very good. All right, Kevin, you get to have your get the final word.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I agree with Ross's final thoughts for the most part. You know, I'm, I'm biased as a design builder. Um, you know, and helical piles have have just kind of evolved that way, kind of similar to the way ground improvement has. Um, you know it just kind of lends itself to being a design build specialty contractor thing where we come in and say hey we we know what we can do with our equipment and with the manufacturers that we work with and and our methods you know we know that we can get these files in uh, and get capacity out of them but uh, I I, you know I just think uh, more you know an open mind and more communication uh between all parties uh specialty contractor geotech and structural engineer and the helical pile manufacturers um you know i think they're a great and very very economical pile in many situations and uh and and one of the probably historically most underrated piles but I, I think they're up there. They're coming up quick.
2: Very cool. Gentlemen, that was wonderful.
3: Lucky I'm passing it over to you.
1: Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I think they did very well, Tim. Um, I'm very uh, pleased at the way Ross was, you know, bringing in examples. And uh, Kevin was actually, you know, giving his perspective as a contractor. I really like the way they uh, tackled the last part of uh, round three. Um, And at the same time, I think, uh, you know, Ross and Kevin both had similar things to say. Listen carefully, right? It doesn't matter if you are a design engineer or a contractor and uh, data, right? Uh, I'm not surprised to hear data and communication is the main key because that's the main key for everything that we do, right? No,
2: no. In fact, you know, I couldn't help but thinking while we were talking that if I had a project, I want both of these gentlemen on my team yeah. um you know we i find that for whatever reason that there's a almost immediate conflict in many of the projects i work on and i and i don't know where it stems from and but the fact is is that we all win when the project wins and the minute yeah. everybody gets that and ross got that kevin get that oh they're God, talking God. about it if the everybody agrees that the the winner is is everybody. When the project does well, then it then a lot of the stuff gets solved, and we get the best solution, and it's applied in a in a, a proper technical manner.
1: Yeah, and and I think uh, Ross and Kevin both had a wonderful thing to say about you know DFI and technical associations like this. Right, I think they are the ones who are advancing the technology, and they are the ones who are bringing people like Ross and Kevin to talk about it. And uh, Kevin, I think I need to congratulate you on the workshop that you know that just happened, helical pile workshop through DFI, where you brought in the contractors, designers, and also the students to learn what helical pile pile world is. Right to show them. Because in schools, like they only see a little bit of it in the textbook, but not really know exactly what goes behind the design and also the technique uh, technicality of uh, installation. So, congratulations for a successful event.
2: And I, I, well, on, on the and I'm also gonna plug the DFI Journal. Uh, we we you know uh, Ross, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I I you know, some of the technical journals are now academic driven and, and really have a hard time going, getting bridging with practice. But I I will say that the DFI journal, it it really embraces uh, practical solutions. I mean, it, there may be some things that are more scientific, but there's certainly a lot of stuff that is much more driven by the practicing engineer. And so I'd encourage anybody that, you know, may not find the right outlet with the conference uh, proceedings, or they just simply, you know, find themselves where they can't get to the conference, uh, look up the the DFI journal.
1: Yeah. And uh, thank you for wonderful comments that you had in the perspective. And I think this will be a very good episode for people to learn more about Helical piles and people who use it as well, you know, um, brought back memories for me. So I'm sure there are a lot of people who will get Mm -hmm. memories back. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ross. And thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Tim.
2: Yeah, that was, that was great. Y'all, y'all are naturals.
1: Yeah. Um, And, and this concludes our episode of DFI Rumble and there is a lot more that's coming through DFI Broadcasting Common Ground. Keep your ear to the ground.
0: On behalf of DFI, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The views, information and opinions expressed during Deep Foundation Institute's podcasts are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of DFI. DFI does not verify or take responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained, nor does it warrant that the information contained herein is suitable for any general or specific use. The podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Editing, modification, or redistribution of this podcast is prohibited. Sponsored by ECA. Thanks for your time. Keep on surviving.